Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is Running Explains' very own coach, Amanda Katz. Amanda is a full-time fitness professional. She is a personal trainer. She teaches at Equinox Gym in New York, and she also coaches one-on-one run coaching for Team Running Explained. Now, Amanda is here today to talk with me about this concept of toxic fitness culture and how it can show up in and probably ruin your relationship with endurance training, what this looks like, what to look out for, stuff you probably haven't even thought about, and how to insulate yourself against some of the, like I said, more toxic elements of some of the messaging you might be receiving in order to become your best running self. Amanda, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Elizabeth, thank you for having me on. So please introduce yourself. Uh, Obviously, tell us how did you become a runner? But then, of course, how did you become who you are today? I I don't know where to start, so I guess I'll start at the very beginning. So my name is Amanda Katz. I'm a full-time fitness professional. I'm a personal trainer. I am a run coach. I work on Team Running Explained. I am also a group fitness instructor here in New York City for Equinox. I teach treadmill running, strength and conditioning classes, as well as indoor cycling. Uh, in my previous life, I worked in government and nonprofit management. And today, I, I suppose I found my love for running. I was a bit of a late running bloomer. I did a lot of solo traveling abroad uh, as I was exiting my last career. And I found that the sport was a fun way to explore the world on my feet. I didn't know at the time that. I didn't consider myself a runner at the time. I just said to myself, all right, let's head out the door 15 minutes one way. Let's come back 15 minutes the other way. And that was my informal start to to running. Uh, After a few years later, I would go through another round of eating disorder recovery. And I had reached a point where I was nutritionally rehabilitated. I was able to engage again in movement. And I would find running again. I I really enjoyed it in a group fitness setting. And I would say that in the beginning, my goals were were tied to things outside of myself. I spent a lot of time getting caught up in how many miles I was doing versus what everyone else was doing on their treadmills or on Strava. But then later I would find the joy with myself. Um, As as we say, and I know that you talk about this often, uh, running runs quite parallel to our lives, right? And and being more secure in ourselves. And I found the joy in disconnecting uh, and, and being alone with my thoughts, uh, getting off technology, having time to catch up with my mom at a conversational pace on the phone. These were the things that brought me joy. And the running goals no longer are, are tied to metrics. Um, of course, these things can still be important. They just don't hold as much importance to me. I, I really love running on my terms. And this belief 
I believe has made me a better coach. I'm able to authentically remind my clients that they can give themselves grace. And the majority of us aren't paid to run. It's a choice that we get to make. So I feel grateful that I get to make that choice. I love that. And, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think for so many people who do find running later in life, it is, it it, it seems to like come to us at this inflection point that we find ourselves, you know, at in our lives. And it was a little bit different, right? But that it can, it can take on so much more meaning, I think, than what we originally expected it to be. You know, I, first of all, I think, you know, running is like the best way to see most new cities and new places. But, you know, for me, like I, I started running for weight loss and then it quickly became so much more than that. And obviously it sounds like your relationship with the sport was like, well, yeah, at the beginning, it may have been kind of tied to these very specific, like metric driven goals. Um, And I think that's not uncommon for a lot of people because especially for adult runners, we typically find running through an avenue of like gym culture, fitness culture, right? Being healthier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, before we dive into our topic today, though, I want to ask you, because I think this is something that I am vastly curious about. How do you, as a full-time fitness professional and group class instructor, handle that much stuff and still find time for your own training? Like, how do you teach so many classes and still hit the gym for yourself? I have, uh, it's, it's really, really important. And I think this is an important conversation that uh, we, we don't see often enough, especially on social media. Um, you have to nourish yourself and, and more, more than more than just food, but I'm specifically talking about food. <laughs> throughout throughout my day, I'm I'm constantly making sure that I my my dietary needs are different than the average person, and it I've I've learned over the course of the last several years of doing. It. I've been a full time fitness professional now for almost seven years. That. Um, I can't cut corners on food. I can't cut corners on sleep. I can't cut corners on making sure I am off my feet when I can. So really prioritizing self is um, is critical to sustaining my longevity in running. And the reason I ask that is because of our conversation today about toxic fitness culture and and the effect that it can have on endurance runners and what you and I see as as coaches especially in the endurance running space because i think there is this belief in a lot of circles that like more is always better and that mm-hmm. you know if we could all work out 7 hours a day and eat the quote unquote i'm going to use this term a very loaded term as cleanly as possible, right? Yeah. Then it's like that's somehow the magic ideal. And what you're saying, though, is that with great output comes great input needs, and it's more is not always better. That's right. That's right. And I, uh, I have 
incredible privilege in that I have access to fitness really at any hour of the day when I'm not privately with a client. Um, so my ability to find time for training, that is, I, I have a lot of flexibility, right? So for me, it's a matter of, I've figured out, okay, these are in, in my day, here is my physical load when it comes to teaching group fitness classes. How do I manage my training load in addition to that? And I have also had to balance as somebody who is a marathoner, right? That I'm not gonna run as high of a mileage week as somebody whose job may be sitting at a desk and doing IT, right? Their mileage in their week is gonna be high, likely is gonna be higher than mine. They're also not teaching 10 cycling classes and five other, you know, five, six other group fitness classes in their week. I have to be, be very mindful of where I'm putting my energy, as you were saying, your output, what I'm get taking in and not comparing myself to anyone else in the sport personally. I mean, definitely that last one, I think for everybody, but especially when obviously your training week looks so different from the quote unquote average endurance runner. Um, so today I want to talk about this concept of toxic fitness culture. And obviously I think that you are such an ideal guest because of your experience as a fitness professional, especially in the group fitness space and having kind of seeing so many different areas of fitness, um, but let's start off and kind of talk about what we mean by toxic fitness culture. And I have some examples that I can, you know, go through, but I want to hear what your understanding of this is. So my definition of toxic fitness culture, which I'm just going to call fitness culture, is that it isn't about health. It's rather the aesthetic of health. And this idea, you know, being fit and looking fit aren't synonymous and yet in toxic fitness culture or fitness culture, it is. So I'm sure you're going to go through a number of examples. Some of the things that come up that in, in our profession as, as run coaches, things like run streaks, things like eliminating interests outside of running or working out getting thinner means getting faster going from race cycle to race cycle without taking off seasons these are things society deems as health promoting behaviors and professionals in the field who have both their eyes open to uh to toxic fitness culture know that it is not the case I think it's really tough to talk about this topic in a way that provides appropriate nuance because the line between what could be genuinely health promoting versus what appears health promoting can sometimes feel like it's a matter of perspective. Um, like why the kind of counter argument to this is like, well, why shouldn't I be engaging in as much exercise as is reasonably possible because exercise is good for my health. You know, 
why shouldn't I be striving to eat in a way that I feel will maximize my whatever it is? Um, and it really is kind of like, I think there's a couple of things here too. It's really hard to look at some of these, um, a, a situation and figure out, is this person engaging in toxic behaviors? Because it's not just about what they're doing. I feel it's really about why they are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can have very high level, talented runners who are running six days a week, running 80 miles a week and have a completely healthy and normal relationship with the sport, with their bodies, with their nutrition. And conversely, we can have somebody who's maybe exercising once or twice a week who has a completely disordered right, relationship with why they are engaging in that exercise and those behaviors. And so, I mean, do you, in part of the coaching that you do, which of course I know is working with different, different groups of people, do you sometimes feel like people are misunderstanding what toxic fitness culture is because they are personally their personal belief is like well I'm not even working out that much I don't even mm-hmm. run that much that can't possibly affect me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's such a good point and it's a it's it's a it, it runs well it runs parallel and also it it, it absolutely exists within an eating disorder definition so on the surface without a lot of without a great understanding of what an eating disorder is or what disordered eating is or what disordered exercise is, one might think that it actually has to do with the food itself. One might actually think it has to do with the exercise itself, the actions itself. So I was giving examples before of some maybe signs that one could be um, dipping their toe into a disordered pattern, right? But I think that as a coach, I have to dig a little deeper into this person's, what their beliefs about themselves are. And it's often the things that, to your point, it's not necessarily their actions. It's how they're talking about, how they're talking about their bodies, how they're talking about exercise, how they are talking about rest, how they are talking, uh, how hard they're being on themselves during a period of their lives that one would say their training tolerance would be low because their life stress is high, right? So these are all things that I keep my eyes open for. And they're not necessarily like, "Uh uh-oh, red flag. But you take note of these things as a coach And it's my job to remind my clients that they're human and that in order for us to have longevity in the sport, we have to have flexibility with ourselves. And I think it's really tough too, because like you said, you know, a lot of the things that I I was making notes as you were talking and kind of wrote down these words, compulsive, anxiety, Mm -hmm. guilt, you know, these, these things that we sometimes feel and, you know, my own personal background coming from a lot of things that I have been successfully able to work through in my life, including substance abuse issues and an eating disorder of my own. You know, I see so many different parallels between that disordered relationship with exercise and fitness and the 
same kind of addictive or compulsive qualities that one engages in something like alcoholism or an eating disorder where like you you almost feel like you're it, it's not it's like almost not a choice right where and if you do try to break free from it you feel so awful right that you're like well I'm just gonna go right back to it because this will make me feel better right so that kind of compulsive like I know I should take rest days but whenever I take a rest day I'm I'm literally crawling out of my skin all day because I I was taught or I believe that the only way to improve my fitness is to be actively sweating towards my goals. Um, and there are a lot of specific examples I think we're going to talk through about, about fitness culture, toxic, toxic fitness culture. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, I mean, obviously you and I have, have similar kind of life experiences in some regards. Clearly you see the parallels too. Yes. And I also, I will, I will mention that I have several clients and, and folks who are colleagues in the fitness industry who also have uh, eating disorders in their past, substance abuse uh, challenges in their past. They identify as addicts. And I find that many of them, including myself, when we re-engage in movement, when we engage in movement after being in heavily involved in our addiction, that we almost have no chill. Like we don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we don't know, you know, we go from the, the excessiveness and obsessiveness and compulsivity of, in one behavior. And we kind of just move it to something that society is like, well, this is healthy. Right. And so if, you know, no one's going to catch me on this. If when I was, when I was engaging in behaviors that society deemed unhealthy or, or sickening, those were identified a little sooner. Right. So you can kind of like hide under the radar when you have a disordered relationship with exercise. Um, it's, it's applauded, you know, if you've spent multiple hours at the gym and these are, these are, um, beliefs that we really have to take the tools that we've learned in our addiction recovery and apply it here. I think it takes a lot of self-awareness. <laughs> And I think that's one of the hardest things too about this is that, you know, in, in our world, exercise is seen as this universal good and exercising is something that like everybody applauds you for your discipline, right? Like, oh, I wish that I had your discipline to, you know, go for a run. I wish I had your discipline to, you know, go to the gym. But like you said, it can mask right because if all if you're being applauded right and then and there is this component of culture that's telling you that not only is that a good thing but that's something that you should be striving for to work out as much as possible right as much as you possibly can to do all of these things because that's how you know that you're disciplined and you're serious about your health and your goals um but there is it, it it can mask some really messed up relationships that you and beliefs that you might have about exercise about food like you said about rest um 
And I also, I think in, in related to that, that's also, I think another reason that I think that not the, one of the reasons I think that disordered eating and rates of disordered eating are higher amongst the active, certainly the endurance population, the general population, but like almost, yeah, because we are, we are buying into or being fed these beliefs that more is always better except when it comes to food and then less is always better when it comes to food and then you have the average person who's like I'm just trying to get healthy and they open up social media and social media is telling them to eat less and move more and all of a sudden they're on a run streak and they're barely eating and they're miserable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I think there's um, one of the pieces that is often missing for folks is a a coping mechanism, a tool, a therapeutic practice outside of exercise. So, you know, and we've, and we've spoken about this before you've had several people on, on your several mental health professionals on your podcast, talk about um, overtraining syndrome and, and therapy in general, every, you know, when you hear running is a form of therapy, even when people say, I mean, I do this because it's like, therapy for me a little part of me just dies because I want to ask them bluntly what else is in your toolbox because sure running is great for the mind and it's incredibly therapeutic but relying solely on running or relying solely on working out as a mental health intervention it's just not sustainable And, and nor does it provide you with the professional support that you actually need. And this is tricky too, because it, 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 the way of the world, right? Somebody's going to listen to this and say, what you're telling me that I shouldn't run, like it's bad for my mental health. Like, oh my God, people know like mental, you know, exercise running is an amazing tool in your toolbox for good mental health. Uh, but it's that what, what if you are in a period of life where you can't run? What if you're in post-race recovery? What if you're tapering and your compulsion to hit certain mileage targets or your you, you the fact that you quote unquote need to run every day, it's now interfering with your taper or it's interfering with your post-race recovery. Or what if you get injured and you are mm-hmm. so driven by the compulsion to continue to run that you're running when you're injured, you're running when you're sick. Maybe you are experiencing, maybe you decide that it's a time of your life where you want to get pregnant. And so that you are like, you know, like all of these things matter. Running is amazing. And obviously if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you do it because you love it, but it can't be the only thing. And like, it is entirely possible to have a really messed up bad relationship with running. Mm-hmm. We see it happen all the time. Uh, and, and one, one where people perhaps don't see it until something unfortunate happens to them that forces them out of running, that they find that they don't have other things to turn to when, when they really need them the most, right? And so putting these things into practice, having a community that is outside of running, having, having friends that you go out to dinner with regularly, being a part of, I'm thinking about here in New York City, right? Having a hobbies like being in the theater or, or Shakespeare in the park, or 
puzzles. I, I all of a sudden I'm into beating friendship bracelets. I don't know. <laughs> There's there got to be things in your toolbox outside of exercise that you can turn to that make you feel good on the inside. So I want to go through some examples of kind of what we think about classic toxic fitness culture. So this isn't going to be running specific, but obviously the principles, I think we all can think of examples of how this might apply to somebody who's engaged in endurance running. So some examples are the promotion of fitness for the sole purpose of weight loss, right? Like the only reason I'm doing this is because I want to lose weight. The belief that fitness has a certain look, that's a huge one. The belief that you're not working hard enough if you haven't achieved thinness, or I would also add for runners, if you're not running certain paces, right? Mm-hmm. That, oh, I, it's not, I'm not, I'm not working hard enough because I'm not fast enough. I'm not running fast enough yet, or I need to run faster um, or else I'm not working hard enough. Uh, the belief that beating your body up makes an effective workout. Only being seen as an expert because you are in a smaller body or as in the running space, I would say, because you have certain PRs right? People mm-hmm. tend to think that fast runners are automatically super knowledgeable <laughs> runners. <laughs> Not always the case. <laughs> um, believing that working out is more important than listening to what your body needs. This is a huge one. This is a huge one. And I want to start here because there is this weird, there's this weird thing when you're, when you're a runner in that Sometimes you're going to go for a run and you're not going to feel like it. And the run's going to feel like not great. And typically in the running community, we talk about, you know, sometimes you just got to do it because you got to do it, right? Keep showing up. Not every run's going to feel amazing. You built some mental strength. Um, but there are some people, and all this all exists on a spectrum, that take that to mean that I should always go for a run no matter what else I'm feeling. And that, that I think, that's the toxic bit. Mm-hmm. In a, in a sport like running, you really have to be able to, you have to be able to do mul- multiple things at the same time. I think anyone who says <laughs> running is as simple as you just need a pair of shoes and just head out the door and you can run. Yeah. It is just not that simple. You have to have a really secure relationship, I think, with yourself. You have to be able to check your ego. You have to be able to, when you're out on a run and you know that it's mentally tough, maybe the weather isn't working in your favor, uh, maybe there are some other challenging outside issues happening, you have to be able to, a part of you has to be able to disassociate, right? And at the same time, you also have to be able to be really in touch with your body. So there's, you're riding the line between I'm, I'm working hard to stay focused. I can do this. I can be here. Let's take it five minutes at a time, 10 minutes at a time and burn out. Right. And I think that's a big part of what you and I do, uh, why we're hired, uh, because we talk through these moments with our runners one-on-one. So again, I see the greatest improvements in my clients when they're able to release some pressure from themselves on always getting it right, 
all the time because there are going to be times where they head out the door and they pushed hard and they, and they shouldn't have, and that they entered the pain cave, but not in the way that was beneficial. Like during the end of a marathon, it was like, I pushed too hard. I, I hurt myself or I really shouldn't have gone out for that run. I was on four hours of sleep and pushing past a mental hurdle while you're running up a hill, you know, like that, those are the biggest breakthroughs for, for clients, like knowing that they went out when they shouldn't have, and, and they're going to do better next time. Right. And, and that lesson was learned and, and also going out there, showing up for themselves, knowing it was something that they were not looking forward to, but growing as a result of it. And I think that's probably the most challenging part for us as runners to to manage. And it's tough, too, because we're fed this like no excuses, you know, just get out there and try something. This is my this is the thing I hate the most, like something's always better than nothing. I'm like, you know, if you can't get your whole run in, just go out and get 10 or 15 minutes in. I'm like, look. Yeah. I mean, if you're consistently skipping runs, if you're being consistently inconsistent, right? If you're struggling with consistency, if you're struggling with motivation, if you're struggling, like that's what coaches do. Like we help you figure out how to be consistent. We try to figure out, it's not even accountability. Like I think at the end of the day, we need to hold ourselves accountable, but coaches Mm -hmm. can help you create a framework for exercise that allows you to be invested and hold yourself accountable. But I 100% disagree with the fitness phrase that something's always better than nothing because to be completely honest with you there are absolutely going to be days when you should skip a run or you should Mm -hmm. cut it short or you should run easy instead of doing that workout and like pushing through and doing the harder thing is absolutely the wrong decision for you on that day and like you said it's this weird skill that we have to learn as runners of like when when to push through right when can i push through safely versus when when is it not safe when is it not beneficial but when we talk about the way fitness culture talks about it right it doesn't seem like there's a choice at all but there absolutely is a choice and a huge, lot of nuance to this it's amazing to me because the the mind of somebody who has a disordered relationship with exercise what you just said the doing nothing is actually the exercise for them. That's the exercise that we work on with with those who have a disordered relationship with exercise to begin with. Being okay with doing nothing. It's actually harder for them <laughs> to do nothing, right? Has that been your experience? Yeah, and it's always funny when I onboard a new athlete who has been engaging in some sort of structured exercise, whether it's a run streak or they're just working out seven days a week or even sometimes six days a week, you know, when we look at their training history and usually people come to us, right, because they need some help. Something's not going right. And hey, there's nothing wrong with wanting to work with a coach to make things even better. But most of the people who come to us for coaching, for guidance, because something's not going the way that they want it to in their running. And it's always like, you know, I'm like, well, how about we talk, you know, we shift your schedule around. How would you feel about if we were only running this many days a week? And they're like, well, what should you do on the other days? Can I still like cross train? I'm like, well, tell me what you mean by cross training. They start negotiating, right? Because, you know, 
people say that they might want change, but they really only want to change as much as they're personally willing to change at any given time, right? So they start negotiating. Well, how, what's, how about bike riding? Well, what if I just rode, what if I did just really easy? What about walking? Does walking count? Can I go for a walk? Is that low enough intensity? What about swimming? I really love to, sw- I'm like, that's right. It's, and I get it. I get where it comes from, right? I totally understand it. But that is, like you said, kind of a sign to me what what I'm what they're not saying, but what I'm hearing, right? It's that reading between the lines. It's about the totality of what they're saying and how they're saying it that tells me that we might have some beliefs to work on about how we approach work versus rest and the balance. Mm-hmm. When coach says rest day, we don't mean active recovery day, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I hear that phrase. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, which one is it active or you want me to recover? Okay. Let's, let's rest. Let's, let's just rest. But we've been told, right? That's lazy. You mean supposed to do nothing? What about my 10,000 steps? Can I still get my 10,000 steps in? I'm like, well, yeah, if you get them in, sure. If you live in New York and you get 10,000 steps in just by going to the grocery store and back and like to walking the dog, that's normal tasks of daily living. Don't then go on a bike ride. Don't then add exercise to it. Like this is, and it's not, and this is the thing too. It's not even about the exercise. We're not telling you not to exercise. It's about why you are choosing to engage or in some cases being, feel like you're being compulsively engaging Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. certain types of movement or making certain choices with food. Yes, I would, to that, I would challenge these ideas. Well, why do you feel like you have to? Right. Sit back and ask yourself, why do you feel like you have to hit a number that was essentially made up? You know, you can listen to that maintenance based podcast episode about the 10,000 set myth. Should you be interested uh, that that's very accessible to everyone listening to this? Um, Why do you feel like you have to? What would happen if you took a rest day? If you went out to walk your dog, maybe you did laundry, did whatever you needed you needed to do that day, and you sat down. What would happen if you engaged in things outside of movement, like reading, like writing, like chatting with your best friend across the country? What would happen if you did that instead? And here's the thing: so many of the clients that I work with, and I'm sure you do too, like they're really busy, regular people work with a lot of parents, right? Who are actively literally running around after their small children sometimes, or like just like always busy going from here to there. They're working, they're parenting, they're maintaining their home. Like, and they're also managing to engage in endurance running and strength training on top of this. Like, you know, I think being in the endurance running space and this kind of space where, you know, we are far more active than the average person, a lot of the fitness stuff that is still fed to us from kind of mainstream culture assumes that you lead a sedentary life, that you don't like do anything ever, (laughs) that you are sitting on the couch 24, you know, 20 hours a day. But that is simply untrue for basically everybody that I know professionally Mm -hmm. and personally. And so if we are taking our cues about what quote unquote enough exercise is, and you are also an endurance runner, 
like that that information that guidance is not meant for you i would agree completely it's so tough though how do we talk about like how do we get through to people right because it is it is about wait why are you doing this right what are the beliefs that you hold about why you're engaging in this i want to talk about another aspect of this my one of my favorite topics right training intensity distribution the toxic fitness culture fitness culture would tell us that the only effective exercise the only effective workout is a really hard one mm-hmm. that we need to be doing tons of high intensity exercise lots of hit lots of fast running if you're not breathing hard and sweating bullets it's not effective as a group fitness instructor and as a personal trainer, I imagine that you encounter this belief a lot. Yes. And it comes up the, I would say that the, so, so going back to the behaviors that you see that don't necessarily, you don't necessarily, the behavior itself, as that's the theme of this, of this episode, I think like the behavior itself isn't necessarily the disorder, right? It's, it's a sign or a symptom, right? That something bigger is at play. So when it comes to group fitness, I see this in a couple of, a couple of areas. The first is specifically women only lifting lightweights. I, in my class, (laughs) you are told that unless there's an injury or you're rehabilitating something, um, 10 pounds is the minimum. And you're escorted back to the weight area. No one is made uncomfortable. I, I, I think anyone who works with me knows I, I have a, my style of coaching comes with humor and, and it must, because I, I think we take, all of this way too seriously. And, and we, we have to, we have to be able to strike a balance. So with that, I would, so that's one area that I see that coming up in this, this fear of getting bulky and staying small. And the only way to stay small and to stay toned and to just show enough muscle is if I only, if I lift lightweights, right? So that's one area uh, of growth, if you will. The second area is taking proper rest between sets, right? So that comes up in, there are some group fitness classes where less recovery is a part of the program. Um, I tend to teach formats where I am actively asking people, put the weights down, recover. And you will still see people doing jumping jacks during that time, right? Because they need to keep their heart rate up because they've been told like the higher the heart rate the more fit they're going to become, the more calories they'll burn. And this all equates to the aesthetic of health, really. Like there's, I don't know what else to say about that. And in personal training, I think folks, depending on their background, if they come from a group fitness background, asking them to recover, you know, okay, take a beat. All right. What are we doing next? No, no, no. You, I said, when I said a beat, I mean, like we got, you got like three minutes. Like, do you just see how much you were deadlifting? Take a beat. And, and you have to, uh, as a trainer, it's my job to remind them that nothing bad happens if they just 
standstill. <laughs> so those are those I think are a few areas that I would say I see in, in group fitness and in personal training specifically. Outside of obviously the run coaching that you're doing when you're teaching classes, if you're teaching a treadmill class or teaching a cycling class, um, do you ever notice obviously again super hard to really judge but obviously you see mm. a lot of the same face you get to know the same people um mm. in your line of work are there people whom you you see in your classes whom you're like they're working harder than they should like they're they're literally it looks like they're literally killing themselves like they are working way too hard yes and and i i'm glad that you brought that up because that's one that was one area i very obviously forgot to mention and specifically in, in, in treadmill running classes, as well as, um, cause I teach a lot of, in, um, endurance based cycling classes. They're, they're actually competitive cycling classes. It's a signature format that we have here in at Equinox. Um, and I find that I have to remind folks and my coaching style is being direct. So, uh, if the person is running at a speed that looks out of control, they are, they are told to take it down. That, that this, this doesn't look, do, do you feel in control here? Do you feel safe? I, I posed a question to them first. It's like, I think I did too much. Okay. That lesson has been learned and yeah, dial it back a little bit. You'll get there. Let's start here. I think you have to remind people that you start you start where you are and you'll get to the place that that your fitness is meant to go to but right now let's start where you are let's meet yourself where you're at that is such a good point in all of this because in a lot of the ways that we communicate about fitness and and running right there are so many metrics we can look at and I think a lot of people I've had people DM me and I'm like more than once, right? Like, Hey, like, I'm just curious. What's a good time for this race distance? Like what's a good time for a marathon? What's a good time for a 5k? I'm like, tell me why you're asking that. Tell me, tell me where, <laughs> why you're interested in this, right? Because it doesn't really, there's no such thing as good or bad times, right? Like if you are performing at the top of your ability in that distance, like that is a good time for you. But like, if, if you are kind of already assuming that there is good and bad fitness, right? That if you are below the arbitrary, whatever it is that you're less than, um, or if you're above the arbitrary, whatever it is, you're somehow better than somebody else. Like that actually is completely meaningless. But especially in the distance running community, I know like when I first started running and I was like, I didn't know like what a quote unquote what might I should aim for in my goals, but somewhere along the line, and I see this all the freaking time, I absorb this belief that anything 10 minutes per mile or slower was quote unquote bad. And I should always try to be running faster than that. Like no matter what I was doing, I should always be trying to run nine, you know, sl- faster than 10 minutes per mile. So 9.59 minutes per mile and faster, up. right? Like where does it even come from? But I have talked to so many runners over the past years that I have been doing this professionally where it's like, 
they also believe that. Like, oh, I can't run. I can't run that pace. It's too slow. Well, what do you mean by too slow? Well, I that's just that's just too slow for me. I'm like, well, that's the pace that is appropriate for you for in this situation, like an easy run, you know, 11 minute per mile pace. I can't. That's too slow. Says who? Right. So so many of these weird beliefs that we pick up like I, but they are pervasive and a lot of people believe them to the detriment of their own development. Yes, it, do, it does them a disservice because they, again, where, where did you come up with that? How can you compare yourself to anyone else? Like all, all of our individual bodies aside, all of our individual genetics aside, all of our individual, you know, somebody running for two years versus 20 years aside, it's impossible. It's impossible. You see it also in, um, in, at, it's, it's funny that you, that you mentioned the time. You also see it with indoor cycling as well. It's a, I mean, this is a very niche conversation that I'm about to, it, it, there's this, how many watch did I have? Why does, why does this person, I'm like, well, he is, you're five foot one maybe above 10 wet. And this guy, he's, he's six foot seven. He's been riding for 10 years. He's twice your size. Of course, his watch are going to be higher than yours, honey. <laughs> it's like, sometimes I think that a dose of reality, right, is, is necessary for people to understand like, oh, you're saying I'm not the same as that person? No, you're not. Um, meeting people where they are today and getting people comfortable, getting us individually comfortable with the fact that we're individuals. How do you as a coach, as a running coach, communicate to your athletes the importance of running in their easy zone on easy days when they have certain beliefs about quote unquote slow running or the belief that a harder run is going to be more effective? Uh, at first, depending on the client, sometimes I'll, I'll calm them into running easier because I'll convince them that <laughs> I'm like, well, you have, you have metric based race goals, don't you? You want to get faster? Well, here's the science that tells you that easy running will actually improve your aerobic capacity and your endurance to become a faster runner. So sometimes I'll calm them into that. Then uh, they'll actually find after a few weeks of easy running that they enjoy running more and then my conning worked. So <laughs> I think they, again, meeting people where they are. And if somebody's initial goal is to get faster, I'm never going to take that away from them just because my goals aren't uh, pace driven. Right. I, I, absolutely that's that's a valid goal that's that's a wonderful goal let's let's meet folks where they're at let's meet them with science and let's get them to a place where they also enjoy the sport and maybe that's what actually keeps them there that's such a good point i mean that's really one of the biggest things that i see too you know and obviously by the time a lot of people like i said end up in our world they're they're ready to make a change. They probably learned about easy running. Maybe they're implementing it in their own training. But really the first thing is like, oh my God, like 
I'm actually enjoying my runs again. I'm feeling really good. I'm not feeling burnt out all the time. I'm feeling like I'm excited to go running now. You know, it's not just about the way that it contributes to your overall like improvements in aerobic endurance if you have performance-based goals, but it is about like most of your runs should feel enjoyable. Not like not like easy and amazing, but like you should genuinely enjoy being on most of your runs. That's kind of the biggest, I mean, the kind of the, one of the biggest canary in the coal mine too, for me, if a runner, I feel like is they're running a little bit too hard on their easy runs is that they start to have that like dread. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with when we talk about what fitness culture tells us that we should always like be super motivated and have a lot of discipline. But if you are continually burning the candle at both ends and like, working just too hard, a little bit too hard, a little bit too hard, a little bit too hard on all these days, like it is going to be a huge struggle to motivate yourself when you are like deprived of energy on a fun, like on a foundational level. Totally. I, I see when folks start to get really out of touch with the experience, it's not, it's no longer improving their mental toughness right? It's rather, it's, it's burnout. Like you're saying it's, it becomes a numbing or a way to distract them from a deeper issue at play their why, right? So as a coach, we have to ask our athletes to be honest with themselves. Are, are they enjoying the process? What went, what, what did we do right on this run? What did we do wrong? Get really specific. Um, it shouldn't, feel like we have to push through every day. It shouldn't feel that way most days. Something that I also see, and I I would be curious to know how you might go about addressing this, is a runner who says, but when I do those hard runs or when I can push through, and by this I mean like not be in their easy zone, but like push through the entire distance of their scheduled run, I feel a sense of accomplishment. I feel very proud of my hard work. And that is what I find personally fulfilling about running. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough place to be in. No, it's, and it's, that's great. And the only way that that continues is if, (laughs) is if we continue to prioritize the work that we're doing 80% of the time and and for in, in this, at least in this conversation, it's it's the easy running, it's the time on feet, it's uh, making sure that our we're going into our runs fueled and that we're intrafueling and that we're and that we're recovering and that we're sleeping right and and that we're strength training right. So, in order to keep feeling good in this twenty percent of the time, the times we really push hard, whether that's at a race or during a challenging workout that coach gives us, we have to keep doing all the other things. And I think that over time, it's almost impossible to not find fulfillment in those and that 80%. You have to, we have to give ourselves time though. None of this stuff happens instantly. And I, and I think that's a, a big part of as runners, we're very impatient. And we, and we want it now. And why aren't we getting faster now? And why am I, and it feels like I'm getting slower. Am I getting slower? What's happening? These things take time. 
But that's also a feature of the fitness culture, right? It's the 12 week body shred. It's the six week bikini ready. It's the, you know, lose 20 pounds in three weeks, weird diet thing. Like that, that so many of the things that are literally sold to us, right? I will give you my money in exchange for this thing are these quick fixes, which don't really exist, but like are these things and so we come to expect that like what wait what do you mean it's going to take eight months what do you mean I need I need four months to train for my marathon on top of the base that I have already laid down what do you mean I need to kind of like there this is really tough for some people because even if for people who are like not necessarily expecting to that'll happen overnight they're like no 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 like I understand nothing really happens overnight for a lot of people they still have what they consider an acceptable amount of time that they think something should happen on right so even if it's not the eight weeks or 12 weeks whatever it is like most people have decided but I personally believe that this should take this long and if it takes longer than that then they kind of freak out and it's it's interesting to me because I always ask him why why do you think it's only going to take you two months to achieve that, or why do you think that you know the, I think one of the most challenging things for us as coaches is to have a conversation with an athlete who is getting ready for a race and they have in their mind what their time goal is, and I've. I've heard, it's unfortunate, but I've heard coaches that will, um, oh yeah, we can do that. And it's, and it's not for me, if I saw that goal with that client's metrics, I would, I would want to lower expectations. Right. And so, um, you as coaches, this is why we're paid for what we do, right? There's this balance of, well, here's where your fitness currently is. This is this is what you projected. Here's what I'm thinking. And well, why aren't you? No, I, I think that's something we can shoot for in the next training cycle. I was like, for now, let's focus on this. And kind of unpacking if I, I rarely have to fight with people about about where their current fitness is once you kind of share the metrics and and the whys behind as a coach you feel uh that the that the goal where where they're currently at uh should be should be the one that they're focused on and not this projection that they have um but i also i i do think it's an exercise in the whys behind you know why why is this number so important to you is it is it because and it's unfortunate but is it because this is the time associated with a bq right and um or or this is the time that uh, several of your friends in your run group are also shooting for so you think that's where you should be and and yet we've looked at your last several long runs with with or without workouts and we're, and it's actually, that's not where we're at. And that's, and that's okay. That's not where we're at right now. So it always depends, but I, but the conversation is always worth having in unpacking those, those beliefs around where they currently are and where they eventually will be. 
I've, I've personally found that a lot of the goals that runners have are completely arbitrary. <laughs> like <laughs> they have like nothing to do with their actual fitness. I mean, like eventually they might, right? And obviously as we become more experienced and more skilled runners and understand our own bodies and our own abilities, like we can become a little bit more cognizant of what's realistic, right? Where we're aiming for. Um, but uh, like I have, I've had consults with runners who've, with all those big round numbers, like I want to run a sub four marathon. I want to run a sub four marathon. I had somebody come to me for a consult and a new, a newish runner, right. Kind of introduction to never really did a lot of structured like racing, didn't really have an understanding of their own fitness, had run a one thirty one half marathon and said to me, do you think a four hour marathon's realistic for me? And I was like, yeah, I do. Where did this person come from? <laughs> I'm like, what? A person was like, hello, would you like some, some coaching? Um, like, let's see where we can go with this. If that's your natural ability, holy crapola. And I've also had people come to me and say, I recently ran a three hour half marathon. Do you think I can run a four hour marathon? Marathon, right? So it's like, right. like both of those goals are completely arbitrary and have absolutely no basis to where the athlete actually is. And so, so often when we are choosing these goals, like you said, they're they're somebody else's goals that you have been told are important to you as well, right? And there's that frustration with like, well, why am I not there yet? It's like, because you're not at that part of your journey yet. And it might take you longer or shorter than you personally believe that it should or expect it to. Doesn't mean it's not gonna happen, but it's like, yeah, like why is this so important to you that you are willing to have blinders on, right? About this one very specific goal. It's the blessing and the curse of being tied to a community. I think that one of the biggest things that I hear from runners, why they love running is is the community around it, right? And that there's a, the issues come up when their goals become your goals. The issues come up when, well, she takes one gel before she runs her marathon. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's an, that's another area where it comes up. Right. Or they're running, uh, with pace groups that are way too fast for them, as we were talking about earlier. So this is where community is, is very important, but the company you keep is more important. The quality of, uh, you, you know, and I think, that that goes into a different conversation, but we want to be part of a culture that's inclusive, that's that's kind, that's also well informed, right? That has access to resources like sports dietitians, like physical therapists. These are you know you you are surrounding yourself with people who are willing runners who are willing to ask for help. I think these play an even more critical role in the communities that we keep. And it is tough. And one of the other kind of toxic fitness culture things that I mentioned, right? The belief that if you look a certain way or run certain times that you are automatically an expert in the field. And 
I mean, I look, even though this is my full-time job, like I am, I'm not a PhD, right? Like I don't, nobody knows everything. I guarantee you there's a bunch of stuff that I don't know. And I'll say, I don't know yet. Right. Cause I'm always learning. I'm always trying to be better, but you know, just because I look a certain way and I run a certain way doesn't mean that I know more or less than somebody else who runs a certain way or looks a certain way. Um, and I think this, this, you know, choose, choose your idols very carefully, right? Choose Mm. who you're getting your information from. Are you getting your information from them because they're super fast or because they are a professional in their space? Um, there was a, a recent story in runner's world, um, about a, an elite marathoner, I think in the Boston field from this past year. And I ran Boston this year and it was cool ish, but very humid, like super humid and it rained, uh, kind of on and off. So it was kind of a weird weather day. Um, I kind of found myself despite my best efforts, a little bit under, under sodium, which I did not very much enjoy, but this runner actually collapsed on the course and, um, she, I don't know. I don't even know if she finished. I think she collapsed and was like taken to the hospital. No, she, she was okay. And then she like blacked out, collapsed uh, like a couple days later, long story short, her hydration uh, strategy as an elite marathoner, like didn't include electrolytes. Right. So but like, so these things, so, and I say that to not to, not to say like, oh, like she should have known better, but to say, look, if I were only looking to somebody who can run X, Y, Z times as this bastion of knowledge about all things running, that's not realistic. And yes, there are some incredibly knowledgeable professional, like running professionals who are also very, very fast runners. And I also know some incredibly knowledge knowledgeable running professionals who are never going to run faster than five hours in the marathon, right? So just because somebody looks a certain way or has a certain set of PRs does not mean that they are a fount of running specific knowledge. Yeah, there's, you know, there, what you're speaking to is this, this class of running influencers and fitness influencers who can can be inspirational, but they may not be qualified to speak on the science of running. There was that study that covered uh, the top 100 fitness influencers on social media, and they found that two thirds of them were promoting disordered behaviors that included sharing misinformation, they lacked credentials, they posted highly manipulated photo and video content. This is information that doesn't come as a surprise to you or me, Elizabeth, but it really is something that our, our listeners and, and, and the folks who uh, exist on social media need to be very mindful of. There are, there are ways to curate your content on your social media feed to have a more informed, well-educated approach to to fitness. And then there are those that are aesthetically appealing, right? Those sometimes, sometimes they cross over, sometimes they cross over, but you really have to be mindful of the content that you're viewing. And for me, I think any red flags are anybody who's promoting any sort of restrictive diet who is 
you know, talking about, you know, calorie restriction or fasted training, who is promoting only one hyper specific form of exercise or movement that they also coincidentally are selling like a program <laughs> for, right? Um, Weird. You know, strange how that works. That the only way that's going to work is the thing that you're selling me. Um, but also, also, this the people who are and again this is tough too because you're like yeah you might find this inspirational but I would ask at what cost to your mental well-being is people who are in the in the practice of like putting you down or shaming you or making you feel bad about not doing quote-unquote enough um you know no days off you know that kind of mentality you are going to need a day off eventually, probably most weeks, if not more than one day off, right? So like people who are trying to deny your very like humanness in that we are all living this human experience where some days we can give 110% and other days we can give precisely zero, <laughs> right? There has to be room for that messiness. It's how we're processing information on social media. It's what, you know, what everything you're saying reminds me of a gut check we have to do with ourselves. Does this account make you feel all right in your body? Does it make you feel all right about where you're at in your fitness journey? Do they promote one kind of body? You have remembering your why and when it comes to running is going to keep the blinders on if you will i i don't i don't know how well else it helps to stay it, stay in your lane right stay yes. in your lane right and that right. i find that that also helps cut down on this anxiety that a lot of people feel about that comparison yes but she's doing this i don't care <laughs> I don't care. Good Neither should you her. because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Mind your business. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much for being here today. I love chatting with you in general. I'm glad we could expose our chats to the world in this podcast episode. Um, I know you do have space for a couple one-on-one run coaching clients. Uh, tell us, Tell us a bit about what it might be like to work with you. It sounds terrible. It sounds, according <laughs> last hour, it sounds terrible. Um, you are, uh, my coaching style is uh, direct. <laughs> it's, it is, it is loving. I've, I, I work with folks who, uh, all, all kinds of folks, men and women and people who identify as just being human and, People who identify as fat, people who identify as thin, people who want to get faster, people who just want to stay in the sport of running for as long as they can. And I'm, it's a privilege. It, it really is a privilege to uh, be asked to, to support them in, in their journey. So anyone and everyone, no matter what your goal is, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, we can find a way to work with one another. I love that. That's why I love having you on the team. <laughs> Thank you. I love being here. 
So if you are a person who's listening and are interested in learning more about one-on-one run coaching or want to learn more about Amanda, you can find that on the website, runningexplained.co slash coaching. And also you have your own very robust presence. Tell us how people can get connected with you personally. Yeah. Uh, on social media, on Instagram, I'm uh, at Amanda underscore cats with two Z's, K-A-T-Z-Z. And you can also check out my website, Amanda S, like Sabrina, cats.com. And I have my uh, group fitness schedule here in New York City. If you're, if you're an Equinox member ever around. And um, I also work privately with uh, one-on-one clients and strength training. So feel free to, to find me where you can. Thank you so much for being here today. This is great. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at running explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.